0: Like to say a few words about serene reflection this evening. You could say it's learning how to stop and look. Much of what uh, I'd like to this evening is for many of you who are here for the first time and are very new to this practice. And sometimes people leave thinking that the practice is leave weekend retreat thinking that the practice is just following the breath for the rest of your natural life. And they wonder why they came all the way out here for that. There must be more to it than that. Actually, there's more to following the breath than you can imagine. It's quite a profound endeavor. But there is also more to this practice than uh, observing the fact that we're breathing or observing the fact that we're alive, which is saying the same thing. And to lay uh, a framework for uh, those of us who are going to be staying on for the rest of the week, So you have some sense of how our individual practice uh, will be moving. In ancient India, a long time ago, there was a king who was also a yogi, an adept, a highly advanced yogi and meditator. So it was a person who both apparently effectively ran a kingdom and also was a great yogi at the time. And so there was a person who wanted to find out how this was possible. Since most people are either kings or they're yogis, they're very rarely both. It's kind of hard to do that. Although there have been some. And so the king uh, agreed to give him lessons. And the first assignment was to go through the palace, every room of the palace, with a a vessel full of hot oil balanced on his head, making sure not to spill one drop. And so this aspiring yogi went through the entire palace, balancing this container of hot oil and finally came back very excited and had not spilled a drop and reported very enthusiastically to the king. At which point the king said, "Um, did you notice what was going on in the palace? I mean, any intrigues, romances, political uh, chicanery, any attempts to overthrow the king or who's talking behind the back of who and who's making off with what? I said, oh, no, I, I, I didn't notice any of that. I was so concerned with just balancing that container of oil. I don't know what was going on in the palace. Oh well, okay, your job's not finished. Now go back, you've learned how to balance this container of hot oil on your head. Now go back and go through every room of the palace and when you come back, give me a full report on the action that's going on there. So the first part is a bit like what we call samadhi or samata or the development of serenity. So that the mind becomes very balanced, calm, peaceful, also strong in that it can place itself, place attention on whatever it wants to pay attention to for as long as it wants to. And this is a very useful human skill, not only spiritually, it's just useful in general to be able to be attentive in that way. The second part is more what we call wisdom or insight, vipassana, or a kind of reflection. Reflection here not meaning so much thinking as discernment, as looking with an interest in the significance of what it is you're looking at, trying to discern what it is that you're mindful of, what's What's its nature? What what is this? And our practice is the integration of both of these. Balancing the hot oil and also being able to tell a story at the end of it. Let's take the first part, the serenity. Uh, especially those of you who are uh, so new to this practice. Perhaps At some point during your stay here, perhaps more than once, you may have wondered about this preoccupation we all have with the breath. Okay, so I've been following the breath and we started last night. It may have seemed like a long time, but you know, people go away and do it for months. Not only that, they do it willingly. They don't do it at gunpoint. There must be something in it. But you may have wondered, you know, okay, so I'm with this one object and my mind gets distracted and I come back. And I've done that a lot of times now. And especially until you learn how to do it in a light way without any expectations. Because at the beginning we really want something from it. and We want something tangible. And if you've been reading a lot of Dharma books, you want a lot of exciting things wonderful things that can't be provided outside of a place like this. You can only get here or somewhere in the Himalayas. So, What is it all about? Why do we take of all the things going on in life, all the many, uh, even just our individual mind and body right here and now, such a complex Situation that we could explore. Why out of all of that complexity do we just pick one thing, the breath? Now I should tell you it needn't be the breath really. It could be a lot of things. The Buddha listed 40. 40 objects that um, were useful for calming the mind and their different temperaments are drawn to different uh, objects. But they all have this in common. By taking this one object, and these objects are either neutral or have some very positive Dharma content, spiritual content to them, what we do is we effect a change, an exchange rather. We exchange all of the many preoccupations that we have for just one preoccupation. Now, I'm sure you know by now that your mind is quite preoccupied If you don't, please just come up here and finish the talk for me so I can enjoy it. (laughs) You know that your mind has uh, planned and worried and you know just endless what, what the mind's been doing. It's preoccupied. I think that's a pretty good word for it. Now, an image that I have found helpful, because if you can see your mind this way, it really helps you free yourself from this compulsion to run after every, each and every production that the mind throws out, thinking that it's so wonderfully significant and worthy of our best attention, because it isn't. A lot of what comes up in the mind is just nothing, it's either trouble or just meaningless. You know, just old ideas that we've repeated hundreds and thousands of times, memories, fragments of conversations, plans that never materialize. Fake conversations that we're rehearsing that we're going to have with a person, and when the time comes, we never really even talk that way. You know, it's just endless. It's qu- quite a show that's going on inside. The image is of a dog running after a bone. And I had a very helpful experience one day watching something like that. And of course, like all of you, I've seen many dogs run after many bones. But one day I just watched in a state of disbelief. I saw this dog run after the bone over and over and over. He wore out many people. But there was always someone new, it was a very festive occasion, to throw another bone, and there goes the dog again, happy as could be. Grabbed it, ran back, brought it back to the next person, wore us all out. What was, the bone didn't even have any meat on it, it was nothing. It was a plastic bone. Didn't stop the doggy. It just kept going. So that you could call this doggy mind. The mind throws something up. When you get back, you better tell that person or they're not going to go. Oh yeah, right. And then you just go running after it. Five minutes later, I better get back to the breath. What? I thought I heard something. And you know, it's not a bad image. We really bite a lot. We get we fl- get taken in a lot. We go running after this, that, and the other thing. Now, that's alright, but what happens when we do it? Take a look. Check, check your own mind. See if that's such a wonderful endeavor to, keep, to spend a lot of your life doing that. At any rate, the ancients didn't think so. They thought that what that was was a tremendous dissipation of energy, a huge waste of our incredible human potential. Because it's not just going on because you came to IMS and are sitting. It's going on all day long. While we're doing something, this this ongoing movie is going on. Different channels coming in all the time, over and over again. We're trying to replace all those channels with one channel. The breath. Now the lion is different. The lion doesn't keep running after things that everyone throws. The lion just sits there very powerfully, stable with dignity, and it looks to see the source of where it came from. It's not going to go running along to get this silly bone like a doggy. It knows a lot better. It's just there and it checks out where is this coming from. And what we're learning to do is to settle into the mind, our own mind, and to allow, the mind will not stop throwing up all these possibilities. You can be assured of that. But one change that can come about is that we less and less run after the bone. Some of that comes about if you would just please take a look and see just what is it that's accomplished by being so preoccupied with these preoccupations. If they are genuinely useful, full speed ahead. Some of them are. Now and then we need to do them. I'm not saying that all thinking is worthless. What I am saying is we do an enormous amount of unnecessary thinking. Enormous. Fantasizing, thinking, planning, worrying, so forth. And The, the fruit that comes out of that activity uh, is not worthy of the effort that we put into it. If you can begin to see that in your own mind, don't take it on faith for me, It won't have any power if you just hear it from me. You've got to really see it in your own mind that this is just not a really good way to use energy for yourself. Now, as you start to do that, that loosens the preoccupation. It loosens the obsession. The compulsion starts to get a little bit weaker. The other side of that is we are giving the mind something else to be preoccupied with. We can't just go into complete clarity like that the mind's nature is to run after objects. And so we're using that obvious tendency, strong one, that law, that natural law, that minds need objects, by giving it an object, one object. We're exchanging all the others for one. And in our case, we're giving it a very beautiful one, the breath. If it isn't a very beautiful one for you now, uh, if you can only stay at this a while, The breath isn't just a bone without any meat on it. The breath, the more you pay attention to it, the more conscious you are of your breathing, the more you get something comes out of that. And I I think at least some of us have already experienced that to some degree. Just being conscious of breathing changes the breathing. It's not that you're trying in any way to modify your breath but just to attend to the breathing brings about a transformation in the breath itself. Perhaps some of you have seen some of this to some degree. As you concentrate more and more, the breath has a tendency to become deeper, smoother, more even, more refined, very enjoyable. When the attention is scattered and we're hardly with the breath, it tends to be more jumpy, not so deep but rather shallow, kind of coarse and sometimes uh, unpleasant. It's as if the breath is pressing to come in and out of the nostrils. Whereas when we are very attuned to our breathing, it's as if the nostrils open up and there's a free flow of this life energy that comes in and a free flow of the unnecessary wastes that go out. And there's a feeling of contentment. Okay, now let's just look at a little bit of what has been said so far and see some of the significance of it and it's for you to see if this is true. If our mind, if it's true that our mind has a tendency to be so preoccupied and that these preoccupations cause suffering a good deal of the time, and more and more as we exchange those destructive tendencies, they're called unskillful tendencies, ones that are not beneficial, and more and more we do learn to stick to the breathing, that means those other tendencies get weaker. Those are mind moments when we're not suffering. Those are real moments in our life. That is why to follow the breath is not just a means to an end. It's not simply to get to a deeper samadhi or to get to uh, the jhanas or to get to uh, joy and equanimity and things of that sort. But the moment of free breathing is a moment of joyful living. So the quality of your life in that moment, it's real. It's what your life is in that moment. Moreover, you're not doing the other thing. You're not spending so much time struggling, caught up in all these productions, concoctions that the mind keeps churning out, like secretions, endless. And the breath being uh, so simple and non-problematic, especially as it becomes more conscious and the happiness that goes along with it, what we're doing is we're planting healthy seeds in the mind and we actually can say that we become a happier person and someone might say, well, did you get a raise on your job? No. Did ten people fall in love with you? No. Did you win the sweepstakes, get a new house? No." Did anything change in your outer life? No, not really. Well, Then why do you walk around with that little smile all the time? What it points to is there is a source of joy that is intrinsic to us as human beings. It doesn't have anything to do with the external world. It has to do with something that's already there, just waiting to be tapped. No energy crisis here. None. Infinite. Free. Well, it's not free. You have to work hard. but. No one's charged. Well, we do. I guess there's a price to everything. Now, as you, just to give you a sense, and this is to some degree for those of you who are, as I mentioned, very new to this practice and you just barely, I don't know, maybe it takes a whole weekend just to discover you have nostrils, let alone follow the breath. <laughs> but you're beginning. And so I, I would like to tell you uh, what it is that you're beginning and that's some of the possibilities. Now, I would say that, of course. I'm teaching this stuff and here I am. How can I be trusted? I don't think it's my message, frankly. <coughs> there are many, many human beings over the centuries who have tasted this. And I'm not talking about enlightenment or liberation or satori or nirvana at all. I'm talking about the first taste, excuse me, the first taste of dharma. Dharma which is inner stillness, a kind of joy that comes from within. Now, one of the hardest things about trying to teach this simple breath awareness to people, especially the samadhi part, is that, especially if you've been doing it for a while and you know that this this very simple operation of paying attention to the in-breath and the out-breath and when your mind wanders, coming back. Just doing that hundreds and thousands, perhaps millions of times. Now, it's not much. When you, when you think about it, just returning to your breath over and over again. But that simple action produces a profound fruit. That is, the more you're able to stick to the in-breath, stick to the out-breath, not slip off it so much. What tends to happen is you find yourself in deeper and deeper states of bliss and peace and happiness. And it's a happiness that's different in a sense. Sometimes you can just sit and you just feel the breath flowing freely and nothing else is happening and you're so joyful that tears come down your cheeks. It's not that unique. It's a a happiness we don't have words for. Suddenly we've stopped struggling. We've stopped trying to become anything. We've stopped trying to get anywhere. And We just simply sitting quietly and having surrendered to the breath are just there. Just breathing freely. What a relief. Sometimes it's just three or four breaths and then the mind jumps in and then we're set back again. Now, one of the reasons this taste of happiness is so vital for all of us, I mean, in and of itself, it's enough. But when we start to move towards the Vipassana part, when we start to talk about insight work, when now our concern is what's going on in the castle, the palace, or the palace is us, once we realize that the, there's no real development unless we take a look at all of our fears and obsessions, and aversions, hatreds, phobias, you know, all the things that all of us as human beings have at a certain point Wisdom has to do with meeting those, understanding them, and laying them to rest. Becoming a little bit more free, less limited by ourselves. Okay, now, if a person, and many of us have unhappiness in our life, it's the human state. I don't think it's particularly the modern world. It may be a little worse now, but my reading of history has always been the same. Just they use bow and arrows instead of nuclear weapons. But it's the same thing. Over and over again. You know, the word revolution was used in Russia as a very good thing to get rid of the Tsar who was so oppressive. And it was all this exaltation and exuberance about the revolution. Many people died for it. And now people are called revolutionaries who want to get rid of the other revolutionaries. And it's not that it's unique to Russia or Eastern Europe. This endless process. And many of us have personal problems, health problems, disappointments in love. We're aging. What Zorba called a full catastrophe. Zorba the Greek. there is is the natural conditions of life. We do get older. We get tend to get sick as we get older. Eventually we die. Each and every one of us. And along the way there are many disappointments. We're separated from people that we love. We're forced to be with people that we don't like. We plan a picnic and it rains. We buy a new raincoat the sun comes out. There's a great deal of uncertainty in life. That in itself can be a very profound reflection, how uncertain everything is. Okay, now, if it's so, unless I'm exaggerating, and I, I don't think I am, that all of us as human beings bring to the practice some degree of being wounded and hurt and being frightened and alone, feeling of being alone. How in the world are we going to take a look at that? It's like an unhappy mind looking at its own unhappiness. It's very difficult. The mind just doesn't want to do it. It keeps getting lost in its own unhappiness. Now, what if the mind can taste a bit of happiness? It's not enlightenment, it's not liberation, but just it can taste some calm, some stillness. The preoccupations thin out a little bit. We feel less enslaved to the mind's productions. A little bit more room to breathe in the mind. More space. And from time to time, and as you practice more and more, it becomes something that you can count on. That as you can tap into this stillness through the breath, pretty much at will. Now that, I can't put time on it. I can't say it takes years. Some people tap it very early. Some people takes a lot longer. But it's, it's within reach. It's, it's a possibility. Now as you're able to taste that, in a sense to dip the mind in a certain amount of joy and happiness and peace, we call that samadhi. Samadhi bhavana, the development of calm and steadiness. The mind is nourished in those moments. And then, when we come out, when there's a withdrawal from the calmness and a movement into the investigation mode, insight work, vipassana, reflection on the way things are, the mind is able to do it. It's equipped. It's it's, It's like having a good night's rest. If you don't have a good night's rest and you have a very demanding day, let's say at business, it's hard to do Let's say there are personality problems and very important decisions you have to make, and all kinds of things going on, and you come in and you're already exhausted. We've all had that experience. Or if you're well rested, you come in and it's like nothing seems like a problem. Even though things are going wrong, you're relaxed and you can deal with it. Well, this ability to drop into some stillness and some calm which is what we're spending a fair amount of time on. For you beginners, mostly that's what you'll be doing on this weekend. Whatever little you taste contributes to the real possibility of learning about yourself. Finally, my own experience has been with all the different techniques and schools and teachers and books, Finally, it all comes down to getting to know yourself. Whatever helps us do that. The problem for all of us seems to be that we're ignorant of the thing that's closest at hand, ourselves. If you don't know about geology, okay, it's excusable. If you don't know the law, if you don't know everything about medicine or education, cooking, but if you don't know about yourself, It's this self that is doing everything. It's putting its stamp, its signature on everything all day long, all night long. And if that's where we're ignorant, that which is closest to us, our own heart, our own mind, of course it's going to be difficult to be alive. And so the samadhi work, the work of calming and steadying the mind, is meant to work hand in hand with a more active mode of investigation called vipassana or insight work where this nourished rested somewhat content and fulfilled mind can leave that state and explore states like fear and anger and have a realistic chance of really penetrating into them and getting to the bottom of them, seeing just what they are. That's what our practice is. It's bringing these two together. Now, a couple of words, especially for the new people who are leaving. It's very easy to hear what I've said As meaning, well, all we do is work with the breath until we've attained a certain level of stillness and calm. Not necessarily, let's say, some degree of perfection, if there is such a thing. And we might have to wait months or years before we can do some insight work. I'm not saying that. Both samadhi and wisdom progress together. For purposes of training, it's sometimes helpful to separate one side of that partnership and to work on it in an explicit way, which is what we're doing. But let's say we're officially doing samadhi work and we have been since Friday night. Wisdom comes into it anyway. You check, see if you have, if it's happened to you. And also, what I'd like to suggest now is ways in which it can, for the remainder of our retreat, by the way, I'm speaking... Not as if the retreat's over, but we have a major chunk coming up. And so, although in the formal sitting, by and large, we're working on this calming over and over again. Nonetheless, sometimes you're taken away and you've been encouraged to investigate that if it becomes prolonged, sustained. That's the beginnings of wisdom work. You begin to see what your mind is preoccupied with, what it's frightened of. What it gets lost in so easily. It's the beginnings of self knowledge. So that we've already begun to do that. Moreover, even though we call something samadhi, wisdom comes anyway, in bits and pieces. Every time you get a glimpse of the way things are, and that comes at the whether you plan it or not it can come for example and if this hasn't happened. no doubt it will and this is one thing you can do. It's a way in which even when you're doing Samadhi work it's still there are plenty of opportunities to develop wisdom. Let's say you have what is called a good sitting and the mind becomes much more calm. It feels very good and you're happy. perhaps flushed with joy, and you do your walking and then it's time for the next sitting, you can't wait to get to the cushion because if it was that way then, and this is an hour sitting, that was only a 45-minute sitting, and you sit down and it's as if you never meditated in your life. And there's, in addition to the fact that the mind is now scattered again, chattering away to itself, the mind is constantly talking to itself. We have to understand that. we add the suffering of the fact that we wanted it to be a certain way. We had an expectation. and In Dharma work, expectation equals suffering. It's a mathematical law. Test it. As soon as you set up reality as being a certain way, life being so powerful and vast and mysterious and constantly in flux and change in ways in which we can't even begin to calculate, So, of course, it's only natural with all that uncertainty, and it's removed from our understanding that if we have expectations of things being a certain way, we're very often going to be hurt and disappointed. Well, supposing you see that, oh, wow, I feel miserable during this sitting, and you investigate, you look into it, why am I suffering right now? Is there any attachment here? In this teaching we talk a lot about attachment and letting go. The Buddha emphasized the important role that attachment has in creating suffering. We crave things. And then we grasp onto them and when they're taken away it hurts. and We don't get our way. And so you see, oh, I see what it is. I got attached to a certain level of practice and then when I sat down it was taken away from me and so I'm suffering. And It can be as, as light as that and you let it go and then you're just back, back on track sitting and being with the breath rather than adding on to whatever the state of meditation is a whole layer of unnecessary suffering. Now what I would encourage all of us to do for the remainder of the retreat As a kind of ongoing theme. It's a simple one, it's invaluable, and it's one that you can take home with you, those of you who are leaving. Um, It doesn't require a special posture or a special place. It's wisdom in action, and the sooner you begin to develop that, the better. Our practice is not just carried out on the cushion or in formal walking. It's a way of living, it's mindful living, the art of mindful living any time you find yourself suffering during the retreat, it could be tiny or it could be a lot, look into it and ask yourself am I attached to something right now? Ajahn Chah, who was a very great Thai forest master when he was here, uh, must be been about 15 or 13 or 14 years ago, uh, he was he led a, uh, a retreat in this very hall. And the way he teaches, he does this in Thailand as well. Like if he saw somebody unhappy, he'd come right up to them. He might tweak them or pinch them, but he would often roar with laughter and say, What are you holding on to right now? What is it? Of course, we didn't like that, <laughs> being exposed that way. But invariably, you look and you see, Yeah. And so, Although letting go is what has a very good press these days. Everyone's letting go of everything, have you noticed? <laughs> Even people who never heard of meditation, Yeah, I dropped that, I let go of this. I don't see that. I see a lot of throwing away or we're not interested in anymore. Then we're very willing to let it go. It has no value. But the things that have value will cling to them for dear life. A more realistic approach to learning the art of letting go, which is definitely central to all wisdom work, If we're attached to notions of ourself and to the world, how in the world can we have all these wonderful spiritual attainments that everyone seems to want, or at least some people want? We're stuck. It's holding us down. It's a weight, a burden. So, the first step in genuine letting go is really get to know what attachment is. And there will be many opportunities for it here. And it can be really tiny stuff. Narayan suggested that you try to get your own walking path and come back to it time and time again, which is very helpful. The mind feels reassured when it has its own walking path. And you are doing it for four or five days. Suddenly you come there, and there is this stranger walking in your walking path. Now what? Probably some suffering go into it. You don't have to go into the full lotus to understand it. You can just right then and there pick up on I'm suffering right now. What's happening? What part am I playing in in making this and fashioning it into existence? Sometimes it's real simple. You just see it. Oh, this walking path doesn't belong to me really. Nothing does. Don't get too profound. Just stick to the walking path for the time being. (laughs) because then it winds up being a lot of thinking. <coughs> or other things. You know, any, so, As you get to understand... See, because if we read all the time that attachment causes suffering, and that's why it's so wonderful to let go, what's being said is that if you stick your hand in fire, you're going to get burned. And so it's best to let go of fire. Don't do that. Use it in only very careful and protected ways then fire is fine. We learn that one with fire. By and large, children learn that pretty easily. But what, what Dharma is teaching us is that there are many things in life that are like fire, in fact, they are even more dangerous. They hurt us more than fire, but they are not so obvious in appearance. They look like they are non-fire. It looks like something that's wonderful, that should be done. Now usually it's not the thing itself, it's our attitude towards it. Okay. Now, If you take this on as a kind of practice, and I would really suggest that you do, one of the things that happens is you begin to see, in your own experience, you dig it out of your own self, you dig it out of your own body and your own heart. And that's the only way it'll have value. It's not borrowed knowledge. It's not something you got from Thich Nhat Hanh or Ajahn Chah or anyone else. You learned it in your own body and mind. And you see that when you hold on to something like that, that it's just unintelligent. It doesn't work. You get hurt more than you need to. And so when you start to learn about this and you develop conviction that comes from clear seeing, that's real Vipassana work in action, then the letting go comes quite easily, just like it's easy to let go of fire. Do any of you want to grab on to fire and prove that one for yourself again? Probably not. You know it. You're pretty confident. Well, there are other things, too. We can learn how to relate to them. It's not the things. It's how we relate to them. And so this will be an ongoing theme here. And Now, those of you who are going to go home, and I'll remind you about this again tomorrow, one very nice way to practice is when you're sitting really put in a lot of time in developing some calm and stability the samadhi practice it's really worth it now i know it's some of the questions many of the questions in groups today have to do with an impatience you wanting to really examine all the color of the mind that make up you you know your personality but what i keep being told to go back to the breath and that, that doesn't seem to have <coughs> so much color. It's not a your biography. It doesn't seem to be directly your story. And the story, we're much more interested in that. But if you can be a bit patient, and at least when you're sitting, spend a lot of time with the calming. Until that starts to come along, we have a ways to go. And as the mind becomes more fit because of this samadhi work, then the investigation into all the things that interest us so much, our fears, our anger, and so forth, we can really do it because we've made the mind fit through the samadhi work and they work very much together. Now, while you're sitting there, of course, also occasions to see impermanence at work, which is central to wisdom, the development of wisdom, to see that everything that arises passes away. And Whether you put that on your agenda as something you're officially going to study, which is something that vipassana yogis do, once the mind gets very concentrated, very calm, you might just sit and just watch the impermanence of everything for hours on end. Extremely helpful. But if the mind's not really steady, it can't do that. And so there's no point in failing. So let's patiently develop these qualities. And we have so many other opportunities during the day to wake up and to see how we create problems. Now, I'm speaking about our retreat, but as you can infer, it really has to do with anywhere, wherever you're going back to. Those of you who are remaining as the week unfolds will be slowly moving a bit more, in a bit more uh, direct way, into the wisdom work. If you come here just for a weekend, you're a beginner. Um, there really are limits to what we can accomplish. Not that it's, it's not worth doing, it's worth coming for a weekend, but you can't do everything at once. For so th- those of us who are staying longer, we'll be more and more learning how to develop both the samadhi and the wisdom and how to bring them together. And we'll be going into this in other talks as well. Um, Don't get caught in the trap. As some people do. It's in Asia as well. Some people will talk as if samadhi is really it. And other people say, that's just for people who don't have uh, anything going on for them. Vipassana is really where it's at. How can you separate them? It's like separating your right and your left arm. You need them both. You, the samadhi, of course, is part of any wisdom work, whether we use that name or not. And as I mentioned, when we're officially doing the work of calming the mind and helping to develop serenity, You learn things. You wise up. You can't help but see certain things. Now, serene reflection, that term, is when it comes together. It's the best I can do with the English language for it. The mind, resting in its own serenity, looks into itself. The reflection I'm talking about has no words in it. It's not thinking or analyzing. Serene reflection is this a mind that is composed, at peace, and in that state coming to know itself. Okay. Um, right now, we're going to have a little clinic. Orion's going to have an emergency clinic for. This is especially for those of you who are new here, just turned up. It's optional. It'll be in the library. Um, this is mainly for people who are barrier for the first time. Now, um, I mentioned this to somebody and somehow that wasn't enough of a guideline. I said, well, I don't know if I should go to this clinic. Uh, I'm here for the first time. You know, to talk over how it's been for you in a, in a more detailed way. Uh, and so it forced me to come to some, well, how can I help people who are here for the first time within that group know that they, look, just go to that clinic. I'll give you some guidelines. You've been coughing a lot, clearing your throat a lot, changing your posture a lot, talking outside, sneaking and reading books when no one's watching. Have you had the thought, especially if you, some, because there are some beginners who have signed up for the whole week, my God, what an idiot I've been. I could have just done the weekend. I could be leaving here tomorrow. <laughs> but no, I have to be heroic and sign up for the whole nine days. And I can't go home because then I'll be uh, embarrassed to all my friends who are so enthusiastic about this stuff. So I've got to stick it out. If you've had that thought you probably should go to the clinic. What else? If you hate me right now, you probably should go to the <laughs> clinic. <laughs> some years ago, uh, perhaps some of you have heard of J. Krishnamurti who was a, uh, a teacher of these things, non-sectarian. His teaching was very similar to the, I would say, the original teachings of the Buddha. And he gave a talk some years ago, which I was present at, at Carnegie Hall in New York. And there were a lot of people, this was way before people were, knew much about these things, but it was at Carnegie Hall, and a whole bunch of people came from, who had didn't have a clue as to what awareness was, or meditation, or who this Indian man was. And he started to give his talk, and he would his talks were always from a very deep meditative place and there was coughing and shuffling and sneezing and clearing of throats and and changing of positions and finally he couldn't stand it anymore. See, what did he say? He said, for God's sakes, would you all just stand up and just all of you cough and clear your throat in unison together. (laughs) There's a few thousand people. Anyway, just a joke. Um, if there's some loose ends about the practice, please feel free go to the library right now and i uh, will Nor- Nor- be happy to try to help clarify it for you. It's what I think is called in, in new terminology a support group. Maybe that makes it more less forbidding.